All righty. Welcome to Straight Thinking, the GPS for the Christian mind, teaching you how to think, not just what to think. This is Joe Aguirre with theologian and philosopher Kenneth Samples and physicist Dave Rogstad. On today's podcast, this is part two of two on developing our minds to the glory of God. Uh, Ken, on the first uh, podcast, you introduced the idea of a public intellectual and talked about C.S. Lewis, and now you're going to introduce us to a second person. Yeah, I'd like to begin, Joe, by asking a question, and that is, who are your intellectual role models in life? Um, You know, you and I, Joe, we grew up loving sports, playing sports. You know, we all have our our athletes, our icons that we, you know, admire and respect. But, you know, I, I wonder what America would look like if, if, if intellectual role models had the kind of influence that athletes or entertainers have. Mm-hmm. What, what would America be like in that kind of context? So I want to introduce another person that I'm going to place right beside C.S. Lewis. And of course, it's Mortimer Jerome Adler. Um, I would say that Lewis and Adler were two of the great public intellectuals of the 20th century. Um, They were, in my opinion, and I I think I could make a realistic argument here that they may have been the two best read men of the 20th century. Um, And both of them were dedicated Christians. I mean, they both became Christian later in life. Uh, of course, for Lewis, it was in his 30s. Adler, it was in his 70s or 80s. But he knew a lot about Christianity long before that. So I'm going to put somebody right there beside C.S. Lewis, and it's the great Mortimer Adler. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, let's uh, learn about him for listeners who have not uh, heard previous podcasts or read anything about Adler. Yeah, I, I think, uh, I think again, uh, like C.S. Lewis, uh, Adler loved books. Um, you know, like C.S. Lewis, he was a very bookish individual. Uh, his training was in philosophy, but in many ways, he's known uh, maybe better as uh, really a thinker about education. Uh, he's re- he is one of the key people in the 20th century to revive the great books of the Western world. Of course, he worked at Britannica, and uh, I, you know, reading some of his books, he talks about, uh, you know, trying to convince the financial people that stood behind the Encyclopedia Britannica to invest money in this project. You know, he this you have the Syntopicon that has the 102 great ideas. And uh, he mentions a story uh, in his book, How to Speak, How to Listen. He says, uh, one of the bankers said, look, I'm not crazy about spending a million dollars on something called the Syntopicon. Uh, he says, look, I care about money. I care about you know selling. So uh, Adler said to him, he said, well, uh, the banker said, is the, is salesmanship one of the 102 great ideas? And uh, Adler says, well, no, but rhetoric is, and rhetoric is persuading people, and persuasion is involved in salesmanship. So if you, if you open this in Topicon, you're going to find some great reading about the importance of persuading others. So the banker said, okay, let's, let's do it. And uh, uh, it's, it's kind of interesting in that kind of context. But but Adler was a, a bookish individual. I remember listening to a lecture. And by the way, you can go on YouTube and type in Mortimer Adler. And there are a lot of lectures that he gave, uh, appearances on Bill Buckley's program, uh, radio interviews that go back into the 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s. Uh, I remember watching uh, an interview with him and I, I think that Adler was about 70 years old at the time. And I'll tell you, I was so impressed with his intellectual rigor. I, I really think that he was sharper than I was at 35. He just, he was like a uh, tour de force. He was, 
he really was forceful. And, and of course, uh, you know, he lived a long time. He lived almost the entire extent of uh, the 20th century. Uh, he's born in 1902 and he dies in 2001. And I, I of course, one of the stories I, I always share with people because I'm so proud of it is not long before he passed away, I got to meet one of his associates. And um, uh, this associate had had seen uh, me uh, uh, creating some classes where we would read uh, how to read a book and develop our reading skills. And he was really impressed with that. And so uh, he says, if you send an email, I'll give it to Mortimer Adler. I said, okay. So I, you know, I just said, Professor Adler, you changed the way I think about philosophy. You, you changed the way I educated my children. You've had a really uh, enduring influence on my life. And uh, I got back an email that said that Adler had said that that had made his day. And I, mm. I, I felt like I'd, I'd talk, I'd been talking with Ted Williams or, you know, Jerry West. Uh, it was like, yeah. Uh, but, but, you know, let me come back to that question that I have. And that is, who are your intellectual role models? I mean, we have favorite actors, don't we? Don't we have favorite sports athletes that we like? Or, you know, there, there are people in our life. Uh, Dave, you might have favorite mathematicians, uh, somebody <laughs> like that, that, that you like. Uh, but, who, who are intellectual role models? Um, and, and Adler is right there with me. Um, he, really, he really taught me that becoming a thoughtful and learned and full person was, was to think about the, the big issues of life and, and to read some of the great books. And that, you know, philosophy is often kind of ridiculed, you know, doesn't bake any bread, you know, no, what a, who cares what those gray haired old philosopher professors think. But Adler taught me that people like Plato and, and Aristotle and Augustine and Aquinas, that these were men that changed the world and they changed the world in ideas. And, um, Adler is, you know, a remarkable person. To give you a little bit of background about him. He was born in New York City. Uh, he comes from a Jewish family. They were non-observant uh, Jewish immigrants. Uh, he he quickly uh, uh, developed uh, his educational skills at Columbia University. By the way, New York is the only state that has two Ivy League institutions, uh, Columbia being one of them. Um, so he went to Columbia University. Uh, he, he didn't receive his bachelor's degree because he failed a swimming class. Mm. And uh, he refused to take it over. Uh, so when, when Lewis got, uh, excuse me, when Adler got his doctoral degree, he is probably one of the few people ever that didn't have a BA or an MA, but got his PhD. And of course, he became a philosopher, an educator, an editor, an advocate of the great books. Uh, Lewis, uh, I keep saying Lewis, Adler, long before he became a Christian, he was a specialist on both Aristotle and Thomas Aquinas. So he knew all the arguments for God's existence. And uh, he knew how, uh, how forceful and powerful Aquinas could argue uh, for God. He chaired the board of directors at the Encyclopedia Britannica. He is the editor of the great books of the Western world. He directed uh, the Philosophical Research Institute. And uh, as I mentioned, uh, had written pretty extensively about both Aristotle and uh, Thomas Aquinas. Later in life, uh, he became ill and uh, he became a Christian. Uh, he, for a while, attended an Episcopal church, but then I understand later in life he became a Roman Catholic. Uh, now, what, what kind of input did Adler have as a public intellectual? Well, he used to go on programs like Bill Buckley. He'd go on talk shows in the 50s, in the 60s, and, and just talk about 
political ideas, cultural ideas, uh, educational ideas. Um, uh, you know, he, after the dropping of the atomic bombs, he was at Chicago University with a man named Hutchinson, and they kicked around the idea of a world constitution. You know, what, what, what would happen if, if the whole world kind of, in, in light of this potential catastrophe of atomic, the use of atomic weapons, what if we had a world constitution? Well, he was a he was a mover and a shaker. Um, he he's written, edited uh, more than sixty books. Wow, sixty books! I mean, I am the author, editor, or contributor to thirteen books, and it's taken taken years to do that. Here's a guy who who's written or edited sixty books. I mentioned the great books of the Western world. Um, but let me also talk about some other books that have had real influence. In 1940, he wrote this book, How to Read a Book, where he, where he essentially laid out, uh, you know, this, this is how you're to properly read a book. And he believed that at that time that Americans were not receiving the best education possible. Uh, I don't know what he'd think today. I think he'd be <laughs> horrified at where we're at today. Uh, but this book became uh, a bestseller, and it remained a bestseller, uh, and is today. Go go on Amazon and just type in how to read a book. Um, it, it still sells well. It's a perennial bestseller. Forty years after that, he wrote a follow-up called How to Speak, How to Listen. This is a remarkable book. I've been listening to it as I drive to work in the morning, and um Adler, of course, talks about the four language skills, reading and writing, uh, listening and speaking. And that's the way he, how he groups them. Reading and writing go together. Speaking and listening go together. He says that of the four, the one that may be the most important is used most often is also the language skill that's least taught. And that's how to listen. And in that book, he talks about giving presentations giving speeches. He also talks about learning skills, knowing how to listen. Um, just, just an amazing type of uh, presentation of, of ideas. There were a couple other books uh, when my kids were young uh, and I was thinking about their education. Boy, if my kids were young today, um, I think I would either homeschool them or I would find a really excellent charter school. But I, I remember um, I wanted to have a real influence on my kids' education. I wanted them to have the best education that I could give them. Uh, his book, The Padilla Program, Padilla uh, for Child, How to Educate a Child. Uh, then he had Reforming Education. I guess if I were president, I, I don't know that the Secretary of Education is, I think it should probably go to the states. How people should be educated, I think, shouldn't be done at the federal level. I think it should be done at the state level. Uh, but if I were a president and I were to make um, an education of Secretary of Education, it would be Mortimer Adler. Um, just has this remarkable ability to make learning and reading and studying fun and enjoyable and relevant. And, you know, I've been through a lot of schools as a young person, and most of us, you know, we were there because, because we had to be there, uh, not because we necessarily chose to be there. But Adler just has this remarkable ability to you know, to draw people in. And let me talk a bit about some of his, his ideas. Um, and again, I hope you'll, I hope you'll go on YouTube. I hope you'll type in Mortimer Adler. Listen, listen to, listen to him talking about the topics of the day with, you know, talk shows. Uh, listen to some of the uh, videos created by the Encyclopedia Britannica. There's one, and I think it dates from kind of the mid fifties where he talked about, he talks about Aristotle's view of ethics. And it's like, wow, um, 
you know, th- this is great stuff and it, and it's heady, but it's, it's really good. And he was very good at communicating uh, ideas. Well, let me throw out some of his, uh, his ideas that he articulated, he defended. He believed that philosophy was for every person and that all people have a basic understanding. All people should have a basic understanding of philosophy, six great ideas. And here are those six great ideas, truth, goodness, beauty, liberty, equality, and justice. Again, the six great ideas, truth, goodness, beauty, liberty, equality, justice. Um, You know, there are people today, uh, you know, they'll protest and say, no justice, no peace. But Adler would take you back to Socrates, who says, what is justice? What is true justice? Uh, You know, he always made me... uh, proud of the the discipline that I studied, a philosopher. Uh, uh, So that was, that, that's interesting. Those six great ideas are connected to the Christian worldview. Uh, That flows right out of Christianity. God is truth, goodness, and beauty. God grants liberty, equality, and justice. Equality and justice are defined by the Lord. Uh, He believed that philosophy should be treated as a distinct branch of knowledge and judged by the standards of of objective truth. Um, And he thought that philosophy ought to stand right beside science as a a leading area that people uh, should give uh, consideration to. How did he test worldviews? He he referred to coherence, correspondence, uh, and pragmatic evaluations. Um, He also believed that philosophy was akin to common sense. So you didn't have to have a degree from, you know, uh, an elite university, uh, that philosophy was everybody's business. Uh, And, uh, you know, I I love it that he would talk about Aristotle and apply Aristotle to kind of the modern modern world. Here are uh, some quotes by him. Uh, I, you can also go on the web. There's a whole section dedicated to Mortimer uh, J. Adler uh, quotes on education. But he, here's a, a fairly lengthy quote, not, not too lengthy, but he, he, he's writing about education and he talks about general specialized and lifelong education or lifelong learning. He says, becoming a generally educated person is a lifelong process. It is unending. It is an unending pursuit of learning, concluded by death, but never finished or terminated by death. He believed in the soul. He believed that we'll have consciousness after death, and we'll take into eternity our spiritual and intellectual convictions. He goes on. In my judgment, sixty is the age at which one can begin to become generally educated, on condition, of course, that the process has been continuing after all schooling has been finished. He says, after age 61 is fully mature and experienced, has been challenged by all the intricate problems of living, has done a great deal of conversing, and is finally ready to make and defend solutions to life's major problems, or to acknowledge the existence of problems to which one can find no satisfactory solutions. Then finally, he says this about education. Individuals whose schooling was specialized rather than liberal and who do not continue learning when they leave schooling behind or do so only to improve their specialized expertise never become generally educated human beings. This statement holds for the most most physicians, lawyers, and engineers, as well as for most who are getting a PhD, merely indicated as the field of specialization they would cultify thereafter. You know, that's a very, that's a very powerful point. Um, Lewis makes the point that a lot of education these days have to do with highly specialized fields, and we don't necessarily read, read broadly. Um, uh, Adler was, you know, he advocated the idea of being broadly educated and 
you know, that that really stuck with me. Let, let me stop for a moment and see if you guys, if there's something we've talked about you might want to ask about. Uh, no, just to uh, affirm what you said in that quote there, what uh, Adler said in that quote there, I think our science scholars at RTB would also echo that uh, in regard to the scientific community that they often encounter people who are highly specialized in a field and very good at it, uh, but yeah. they, they don't necessarily integrate uh, other disciplines or even other areas of education. So when the topic of God's existence comes up, it's, it's not uh, a consideration sometimes for some of them. Mm -hmm. Couple of comments. One, I think it's interesting that he seems to make a distinction between schooling and education. I think schooling is what you get when you go to school, which of course includes some education, but real education is what you're developing afterwards. The, the second thought that I had was that, um, you know, my observation among a lot of these, as he points out, physicians, lawyers, engineers, in my case, scientists, physicists, is that they, they are very smart, many of them. Yeah. They're not educated in the way that he's talking about, but they think that they're qualified because of their intelligence to make comments and to uh, have, have opinions that should be regarded uh, dealing with these other subjects. Uh, particularly, I'm thinking of uh, even uh, great intellects like uh, Stephen Hawking, yeah. who uh, because of his great intellect has comments to make about uh, the meaning and purpose of life and, and uh, you know, what this whole world is about and whether the universe requires a creator and and, you know, in the process, he says a lot of things that are just nonsense. I think of one particular thing, and that is that in regards to our home here on Earth, he thinks that the future of mankind involves going somewhere else. And I just think that's about the, I don't know, I'm maybe being biased here, but it's about the stupidest thing I ever heard that you know, where are you going to find another earth that is anywhere close to what we have here in any place that is accessible that you can actually go to? Wouldn't it be far better to focus your attention and your intellect on trying to improve what we have here and taking advantage of the earth that has been provided for us and it's a marvelous environment that it is? It is it it is very interesting that uh, when people are very highly intelligent, and certainly Stephen Hawking, one of the bright people uh, in the modern world. I mean, some would some would grant him the status of maybe the the greatest modern scientist. Um, you know, comparisons with Einstein or Newton uh, were are certainly made when it comes to uh, Hawking. Uh, but you're right, when he begins talking about philosophy or theology, uh, he, uh, you know, all of, all of that, that skill in education drops precipitously. And, you know, it's, to be a public intellectual is not easy. We've talked about Lewis and Adler being a person like that, but they were so broadly read that even though they weren't politicians or you know they weren't um, uh, scientists, they were astute, and they were they knew enough to kind of be able to present those ideas. Um, when Hawking said philosophy is dead, of course he's making a philosophical statement, and uh, you know I I I I think it's important. Um, you know, I, I think it's important educationally, if I could say this, um, to take a doctoral degree is, is, to, is to know a great deal, hopefully a great deal about a pretty narrow area. Um, 
but education generally is much broader than that. And uh, Adler, I think, has, has done a lot to kind of bring that uh, to the fore. Let, let me give you a few more quotes from him um, as, we, as we think about this extraordinary thinker. Uh, here's what he says about philosophy. He says, it cannot be too often repeated that philosophy is everybody's business. To be a human being is to be endowed with the proclivity to philosophize. To some degree, we're all engaged in philosophical thought in the course of our daily lives. I, I like that. I, I, I like to think about philosophy in those terms. I, I become less interested in philosophy when it becomes so specialized and uh, it becomes so academic. I, I would much rather talk about Aristotle and Plato and Socrates and and how, you know, what's the meaning of my life? What's going to happen to me when I die? Um, how should I live? How do I how do I measure the meaning of my life? Those to me are really uh, very practical ideas, and I appreciate Adler. Here's a comment that he makes about uh, the life of the mind. He says, it is man's glory to be the only intellectual animal on earth, the only intellectual animal on earth that imposes upon human beings the moral obligation to, to lead intellectual lives. Uh, I read a, I, I listened to a recent talk that Adler gave about artificial intelligence. He says, human beings are exceptional creatures. We're different than uh, the animals, and were different than the machines. And Adler thought you'll never have true artificial intelligence. You'll never have, uh, you know, real consciousness. Uh, it's just not going to happen. Um, and he also believed that animals, as bright as some of the species are, they don't have conversations. They send signals to one another. That human beings have this incredible ability to read and to write uh, to speak and to listen. And he mentions that reading this, you know, using symbolic speech to blend letters, to convey symbols. He says, this is the most compl complicated idea, but he says the average seven-year-old has it down pretty well. Uh, humans are exceptional creatures. Uh, I think that fits well, of course, with uh, the, the Imago Dei, uh, the image of God. Here's a quote about the need to be careful thinkers and learners. He says in, in his book, uh, How to Read a Book, do not say you agree, disagree, or suspend judgment until you can say, I understand. I try to remind myself of that. Do not say you agree, disagree, or suspend judgment until you can say, I understand. Ad Adler thought that there are going to be real differences in the world. There's the difference between communism and democracy. Uh, there are people who have very differing ideas, but we have to know what those ideas are. We have to be able to, to be able to say we understand them before we can you know, say that we disagree with them or we agree with them or, hey, I don't know, I'm just gonna, you know, I'm gonna part company. Um, I think he did a very good job of trying to bring people together from different points of view. Of course, in those days, it was a little bit easier on a political level to maybe bring a person on the political left together with a person on the political right. And what's interesting is a lot of people from both liked him. Uh, cons very conservative people liked him. People who were on the political left, uh, uh, in those days, we'd call him maybe a classical liberal. They tended to appreciate Adler. And then, of course, here's a quotation about something that he was very passionate about reading. He said, he said that reading is the most fundamental discipline. He said that if you can't read, um, you're going to be hurt in life. And, of course, he agreed that American education had to be reformed to try to help people. You know, you have the haves and you have the have-nots. And he thought, he thought, you don't give people fish, you teach them how to fish and then stand back and watch what they can do. 
uh, with their natural abilities and, and the opportunities that are made available in a country like America. Here's what he said on reading. I, I always cite this when I teach courses on reading. He says, you will not improve as a reader if all you read are books that are well within your capacity. You must tackle books that are beyond you, or as we have said, books that are over your head. Only books of that sort will make you stretch your mind, and unless you stretch your mind, you will not learn. Um, again, Adler thought that you certainly want to communicate ideas as clearly as you can. But Adler thought what was unique about the great books of the Western world is that the, the reason these books were great and not merely good was that you could never exhaust them. They were the best that human authors could, could, could provide. And they, the reason you can never be done with them is because no matter how many times you read or reread them, they always challenge you. Um, and he thought that you need to be a skilled reader to be able to read these great books. He thought great books were well-written, but a lot of people were not prepared uh, to be able to read with the kind of skill and capacity that it would allow them to succeed. And, you know, that's a point that I try to make with a lot of people. Uh, people often ask me for recommendations for sources. Uh, you know, what, what book can I read on this topic or that topic? And when I was teaching a lot in, in colleges uh, or when I taught a lot at the church level, people would come back to me and they'd say, well, you recommended this book and I tried to read it and I got about a quarter of the way through and I had to put it aside because it was over my head. And my comment was, good. <laughs> um, you want something. That's not the time to give up. That's the time to say, okay, reading this book by Augustine or reading this book by C.S. Lewis or Plato, um, maybe I need more help, but don't stop. Um, you know, I've spent a lot more time over the last 20 years reading classic books. I have to read them slower than I read other books. And they challenge me. Sometimes I have to come back to other sources and say, well, what was Plato really trying to communicate here? Even though I think uh, Plato is a very skilled writer, uh, but books are going to challenge you. They are going to be over your head. Uh, and if you stick with it, pretty soon you start learning and your development of ideas, uh, you know, really begins to, to come forward. Well, how about this book, How to Read a Book? Um, I want to tell you my own personal experience. Um, again, when I was a kid, I, I, I know I was a bright kid, but I, um, I didn't have my ducks in a row when it came to education. Um, I just did enough to get by, and I was smart enough that I could do very little work and get adequate grades. And, uh, you know, at the time I was uh, really searching, I was, even when I couldn't articulate that I was searching, I was searching. I was trying to, as a kid, I was trying to figure out what is life all about? What's, what's the goal of it, life? Um, and uh, I hadn't thought deeply enough uh, about philosophy and uh, theological issues. So when I became a Christian, I was right around 20 years old. I had some Christian influence in my life previously. I'd been baptized at St. Athanasius Parish. My parents had introduced me to Catholicism to some degree, but it kind of faded. And uh, I, I had a real conversion uh, right about the age of 20. And I realized almost immediately that to, to be a good student of the Bible, to be a thinker, I had to read. And uh, I was looking for books to help me. I, I dedicated myself to reading three hours a day. I'd, I used to read at night and I'd fall asleep. I was tired from working, going to school. So I, I made up my mind, I'm going to get up at 5 a.m. 
and I'm going to read from five to eight, and then I'll go to school, then I'll go to work. So I did that for a couple decades, and I was looking for books to kind of help me. How do I sort through all of these remarkable ideas that I'm learning? And, and I wasn't interested just in theology or Christianity or the Bible. I was interested in history. I was interested in philosophy. I, I wanted to know more about science. And so I wanted something to kind of help me organize my ideas as I was reading through them. And I'm not sure I know who first recommended Mortimer Adler's How to Read a Book, but when I read it, and then I read it again, and then I read it again, I realized this book not only made me a better reader, this book actually transformed my entire intellectual life. I, I learned things about how to how to how to classify. I learned how to organize. It it was it was frankly one of the most important books I ever read, and it just changed me. I I I actually thought I went up. Dave, it was like in mathematics when when a, it's squared, right? It's not just the number, but the number squared. Hmm. It was like an exponential. It was like it was like I had walked up several, you know, several steps, and I kind of looked back and I thought, "Wow, I, I actually understand that kind of thing." And, you know, I, I often kind of say the two people who taught me to read were my mother, Violet Samples, and I, I have to give my mom a lot of credit. I don't talk as much about my mom as I do my dad. But I really have to give my mom a lot of credit. My, my mother, of course, was born in Clay County, West Virginia. She was a young girl during the Depression. Uh, my, my mother's side of the family fared better than my dad's side of the family. Um, my, my grandfather on my mother's side, so my mom's dad, they were able to keep their farm. And during some of the most difficult times, they grew a lot of food. By the way, Eleanor Roosevelt, uh, the first lady, the uh, Franklin Roosevelt's wife, a, a world figure in her own right. Eleanor Roosevelt said she went to West Virginia in the early 30s. And she said it was the most poverty she'd ever seen anywhere. Uh, my parents were poor. And, and yet my mother, she had a dad. Um, uh, her maiden name was Neil, N-E-A-L. Some think maybe they dropped the O off. Uh, so there's some Irish in my mother's side of the family. Uh, but her dad, uh, he was a reader. He, he had books all over the place. He was a thinker. Um, uh, my, my, mom, my mom was kind of the intellectual historian of the family. She would tell me all the family secrets and things like that. And I remember my mother telling me that when my dad went off to World War II, my mom was really, really worried that he'd be killed. And so she went to her dad and said, you know, Jesse's not going to come back. What am I going to do? And um, my mom told me, my grandfather said, oh, he'll come back. He's a daredevil. You know, he'll be back. Um, he kind of knew things about my dad. Maybe even my mom didn't know. But um, my grandfather was a reader and my mother became a reader. And my mom was my mom had even though she didn't graduate high school, my mother became a reader. And uh, I remember times I have memories of my mom. And I remember one time I came home from elementary school. I must have been in third grade. And I walked into the house, and my mother was she was a she was a great housekeeper, great cook. My mom knew that I was sick two days before I knew I was sick. Uh, just had a motherliness about her. But I remember she was ironing, an old ironing board. You know, you, you pull it out, and you bend the legs down. And I walked in and she was ironing clothes and she was reading a book about the Kennedy assassination. And I, I just kind of looked at her like she's ironing with one hand and turning the pages of the book with the other. And so my mother was bookish. You know, she was a little self-conscious not being well-educated, but my mom was a seeker. And I, 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 here's another story about my mother. 
two Baptist preachers circled the neighborhood one day and they knocked on my mom's door and uh, they wanted to talk religion. They wanted to talk Christianity. So my mom invited them in and they asked her, well, how do you know you're going to heaven? How, how do you know you're saved? And my mother said, well, I've received the free gift of salvation in Jesus Christ. And the two Baptist preachers, they were so impressed mm. by that. Yeah. Well, my mother was a reader. She was bookish. She taught me how to read. And then Mortimer Adler came along, and he really taught me how to read. He really uh, kind of pushed me. And I think, guys, that's one of the, the most important books I've ever read. Hmm. It, it, just, it, just, it just did something to my mind that I nothing I'd ever read before did that. And so here you have, uh, you have two intellectuals. Let's put them side by side for a minute. C.S. Lewis and Mortimer Adler. Um, you could make a case that they may have been the two best read people of the 20th century. Uh, I, we're going to do a show a little later about C.S. Lewis's memory and about how he was able apparently, to remember everything he ever read. We're going to talk a little bit about how C.S. Lewis read books. But I do think you could make a case that Adler and Lewis may have been two of the very best well-read people of the entire 20th century. Some people would even go further and say they may have been two of the most educated people in Western civilization. And yet both of them were Christian. Both of them saw learning ideas uh, as needing the foundation, and they saw the foundation for being God, uh, being Christ. And uh, I'm, I'm encouraged by that. I, I, uh, I envy people who actually were students of Lewis and Adler. I, I wonder what it would be like to have gone to school with them and be taught by them. I wonder what it would be like to, to go to a pub or a bar with Adler and Lewis and in the midst of the pipe smoke and the, and the pints uh, to be able to talk with them and to ask them, well, how, what did you think about this? Or what do you think about that? But, you know, in, in a sense, I've had the second best thing. I, I have had them as teachers once removed in that, in that, if you really want to know what a person thinks, read their book. Sometimes I think people write things in their books you'd never hear from them, you know, just in general conversation. So, uh, guys, let me repeat a question. Who are your intellectual role models? And I think we need intellectual role models. Yeah. Yeah, I have a question. Um. One of the things that Adler says in How to Read a Book is that in some books you skim, some books you read more carefully. Yeah. There's a variety of ways of treating that, thinking about that. And I've always had a very hard time skimming. I just, somehow it just doesn't, if I'm going to read a book, I, I got to read every word and, and I'm, thinking about it as I read. You commented earlier about how you wanted to underline things. And when it was read to you, you couldn't easily do that because the reader <laughs> moved ahead. Yeah. Uh, and, and I would have a real hard time with that too, because, you know, I'll read a sentence over and over again, not just because I missed it the first time, but because I wanted to think about what is that idea that's being presented there um, so it, it was obvious that, that uh, Adler is one who, who certainly, and maybe yourself, you skim him out of books. Lewis, on the other hand, if he could remember everything he ever read, probably didn't skim. He probably read everything. He probably read every word. Otherwise, how would he be able to remember everything that he'd ever read? So, I mean, even our, our, uh, you know, great scholar here, our, our intellectual um, 
you know, person that we regard very highly, C.S. Lewis, probably wasn't a skimmer. I don't know that for a fact, but I'm, I'm implying it or, 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 you know, suggesting that maybe that was the case. Anyway, I just would be curious to know what you think yeah. about that. Well, I, as I mentioned, I want to do a show. I've read a couple articles that have come out by a, a Lewis scholar who talks about whether Lewis had the really had the memory that he claimed to have had. And uh, there's quite a few people who interacted with Lewis who said, yeah, he was he really did. Uh, it wasn't just a parlor trick. He could send his students to pick out a book of his library and the student would read and he'd say, OK, stop. Here's the book. This is the context, the chapter. And then Lewis would recite a couple paragraphs that followed. And I've I've seen that multiple times from people who knew him. Now, where I might where I might differ, Dave, is I don't know if Lewis would emphasize the importance of skimming that Adler does, but I know that Lewis did emphasize you need to discriminate the books you read. Mm. He thought certain books should be read and other books, you're wasting your time with them. I think I think what Adler is really trying to do with what he calls pre-reading or skimming is he wants you to know as much about the book as possible before you start reading, before you start reading it analytically. And analytically is the way most people think about reading, where you start with page one, you read through right. until the end. Right. For Adler, that is an intensive reading. And you're not just reading, you're asking questions, you're taking notes. So Adler would emphasize, look, you want to you want to pick you want to select books that you have investigated and, you know, yeah, I got to commit myself to this. But skimming can be very meaningful. Um, skimming would be examining carefully the table of contents. Skimming would be reading, you know, the back cover of the book. Skimming may also include reading the summaries at the end of the chapters. Uh, it, might, it, it might also include reading through the book as fastly as you can, not, not stopping to note take or outline, just buzzing right through it. Um, I think what's helped me in that context, and, and Lewis, by the way, uh, Adler talks about four types of reading. There's elementary reading, there's pre-reading or skimming. There's analytical reading, which is reading with questions in your mind, a very intense, time-consuming reading. And there, then there's syntopical reading, which is almost like a doctoral dissertation where you read multiple books on a single topic and then come up with your own independent analysis. Uh, well, that that's a lot the way we think of a, a, a doctrinal uh, thesis. Um, I think, Dave, that uh, what can be helpful in, in this kind of context is uh, you only have so much time. Mm. You want to be able to pick books that you think are right at the top. And I mean, I know you do this. You do ask, well, what's the best book on this topic? Or what, you know, if I want to think about this, where should I start? I think that that is Adler's real emphasis. He wants... And I can tell you, there are a good number of books in my library that I've skimmed, but see, I know enough about them that if I, I think, oh, I, got, I need to go back and look at this. Well, I skimmed that book and I can go back. So we'll do a show, maybe two of them, where we'll look at ideas on reading and learning from Lewis and then a, ideas of reading and learning from Adler. So those, those are our two upcoming shows to look forward to. Okay. All right. Sounds good. By the way, you're, you're right. Uh, while I don't maybe do the skimming in the same way that Adder proposes, I certainly do am selective. Yeah. And I do read, you know, reviews or I'll, you know, be, be interested to know, for instance, books that you've recommended. Yeah. I'll, I'll read. And by the way, you deny this, but I insist that it's true that 
of all of our scientists at RTB, you might be the best all around red. Now, you can't touch Hugh for reading journals. He's he's the he's the master. But in terms of the breadth of reading, you are uh, Fuzz is a well-read person too. Uh, we we have some really bright scientists, but Dave Rogstad is one of the best read people I know. All right. There you have it. There you have it. <laughs> well, thanks again, Ken, for your uh, insights. Uh, I know it has helped me, and I'm sure our listeners would agree. Uh, let us know what you think of the podcast. Uh, we welcome your comments and questions. You can reach Ken via his Twitter handle at RTB underscore K samples. And perhaps there's a topic uh, that we ought to take up. Uh, give us uh, uh, your thoughts on that as well. In fact, Ken, here are a few more comments that have come in. People continue to read your books, so I'm sure you're glad to see that. Here's one. I have three of your books. Good stuff. Thanks for thinking and writing and teaching the truth. Caleb Epnet. And here's another one. I really enjoyed God Among Sages and Seven Truths That Changed the World. Now I will get your book, Christian Endgame. Craig Baker. Thank you, Craig. And one more. Reading a few of your books is like a master's degree. Aaron Wentz. <laughs> there you go, Ken. I like that. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, thanks for those uh, comments. Be sure to read Ken's blog for something less than a book, but that where you will also receive great insights. Reflections by Ken.wordpress.com. Ken writes a blog every other week, and you can also comment there as well. So be sure to check out Ken's blog. All right, that will wrap it up for this podcast. Be sure and subscribe to the Reasons to Believe podcast on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, and Spotify, and you'll get an episode delivered to you each week. For Ken Samples and Dave Rogstad, this is Joe Aguirre with a reminder that the goal of apologetics is not victory, but truth. Thanks for listening and join us for the next edition of Straight Thinking. Thank you for listening. Your prayers and financial support are reaching people with reasons for faith in Jesus Christ, our Creator and Savior. To allow Reasons to Believe programs like this to continue, make your gift today at reasons.org.